Welcome back to Pod as a Woman, an honest, unfiltered conversation about the current state of politics and pop culture from three veterans of the Obama White House who also happen to be friends. I'm Alejandra. I'm Darian. And I'm Johanna. And today we're joined by Julie Cashin, Senior Fellow and Director of Women's Economic Justice at the Century Foundation. But before we get to her, last week there was an article in Politico that ignited a conversation on an Obama alumni listserv that really inspired today's topic. So Johanna, can you give us a rundown? Yeah, so last week, Daniel Lippman, who's a correspondent for Politico, wrote up the frustrations that some of the Trump administration appointees were having at the end of the administration because they did not qualify for paid family leave. Specifically, they started with one of the uh, women in the administration, uh, Vanessa Ambrosini, who's talking about how she was looking forward to three months of parental leave when they welcomed a baby right before Christmas. But she didn't get that leave because as a political appointee, all political appointees are asked to resign. They were essentially asking for a caveat from the Biden administration. And the Biden administration, because of the truncated time and even doing the transition, was unable to grant that. But what started happening on the Obama alumni listserv is we all were going, whoa, 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 like we all have those stories and we didn't complain for ourselves. We worked to advocate for change for all women and men across the country with a paid family leave act. (laughs) Do you want to be part of it? So uh, there was quite an uprising of a number of our moms who wanted to pay attention to this issue, what's being done right now, and what we can see so that women and men have the right to take paid family leave long term. Right. And a lot of this, it's a collective issue. This is not a Republican or Democrat issue. All families should have this. And right now what we are seeing, especially in this pandemic, is that America's mothers are not being taken care of and America's families are bearing the brunt of the pandemic and all of the costs associated with it. There's this New York Times article that came out recently that featured a couple of moms and showed the challenges that we face. And I think, you know, I experience this when I had my youngest, Dawson, and my company, which was a federal contractor, offered me three days of maternity leave. That's not even enough to essentially cover your hospital stay. So I had Hugh, my son, right before the reelect. It was March. It was really bad timing because, you know, at the White House, um, there's only so many people who can do any job. And I... I know that at the beginning of the administration, um, because there had been no leave, the Obama administration tried to extend the leave in which they had the authority to extend. But for us, because we technically qualified, but there weren't other people who could fill our jobs, we ended up for the most part working. And so for me, I know that it was NATO, it was the G8 summit, there was a host of things going on. And so I was on my BlackBerry while I was delivering my son, and I was back with my son right after. And the thing is, like, I don't talk about it because I think that that's what we should do. I think that when you have that unique 
responsibility. It's actually your responsibility to advocate for more change for more people so that they don't have to be in that situation. So I know it was seven weeks after we had Hugh that I was in Afghanistan for a live address of the nation. But I know that so many of our military men and women have to go right back to service after they have children. So to me, this is my responsibility to advocate for more change for so many others who don't have that when you have that power. And so to read these complaints out of the Trump administration, many of whom even refused to give their name because they said, oh, you know, I don't know if I'll be able to get a job afterwards. It was just like, holy God, <laughs> like, you don't understand. Your job is actually trying to advocate for change for the rest of America. Well, it's interesting because a lot of times people don't really stand up for an issue until it affects them personally, mm -hmm. right? That's so and right. You know, growing up, being raised by a single mother myself, and with there being several single mothers in my family, as far as my own aunts, paid family leave was nothing that was an option or even really considered. And that's not something that's unique to my family. Women of color were the least likely to have access to paid leave even before the pandemic. And they make up a disproportionate share of the frontline healthcare workers right now that need it the most. And so you know, this was not the way that this issue needed to be brought up. But I'm glad that now it's something people are talking about. I'm glad that it's something that the Biden administration is prioritizing in their relief package. Because if anything, again, this pandemic is bubbling to the surface issues that were already plaguing this nation. But now mm -hmm. it's undeniable. You can't look away. No, Alejandro, you are right when you bring up how it disproportionately affects black and Latina women. One million women, according to that New York Times article, have left the workforce because they don't have childcare, because they need to take care of their families, because these jobs have been affected by the pandemic and the way that the economy is going. And there's so much pressure on moms and especially single moms to do it all. And to your earlier point, Johanna, you feel like you have to be a Wonder Woman. You feel like you have to come back and provide for your family. Child rearing is such an important job, and so often it's overlooked because it's seen as a woman's place. Yeah, well, and I think I just want, look, I'm I'm sorry that Vanessa Ambrosini from the Trump administration went through this, but I just want her to know that she is not alone. In fact, I don't know many employers in Galesburg, Illinois, that offer paid family leave. And even from our own administration, just on the surface, we had so many women who had stories of being in the very same spot. And Dory Turner Knoll, who was press secretary at the Education Department, said it really well because she said at the end of the Obama administration, not only was she not employed for a paid family leave, she had no leave, but she was also terrified that the Affordable Care Act was going to be dismantled because President Trump was pushing to dismantle the Affordable Care Act. So I welcome their realizing that this is an issue, but I think it's time for us to look at what action is required for us to really move the needle for women of all different backgrounds and men throughout this country. And so I'm, I'm thrilled that today we have Julie joining us. Absolutely. Let's go to Julie now and take a deep dive into this issue, what the past work that's been done, where we are now, and what we need to do to move forward. 
Today, we're joined by Julie Cashin, Senior Fellow and Director of Women's Economic Justice at the Century Foundation. Julie has more than two decades experience working on issues such as work and family, caregiving, economic mobility, and labor. Welcome, Julie. Thank you. It's great to be here. The COVID pandemic is taking a disproportionate economic toll on women. So let's talk about that for a second. Can you talk us through the uniquely negative effect that this is having on women in the workforce? You know, Patricia Cohen from the New York Times called it a one, two, three punch, but I actually call it a one, two, three punch and then a kick. So basically like punch number one was the service sector jobs, right? Women and women of color especially are in the majority of service sector jobs. Those were of course hit as restaurants and retail shut down because of the pandemic. Then public sector jobs. Public sector jobs were lost because revenues were down in cities and states and people were let go. And that's also a place where women tend to make up the majority of the workforce. Then childcare and schools shut down or was not available because of safety concerns. So moms were the ones who, as usual, took up the majority of the caregiving responsibilities. And finally, the kick was the essential workers who were mostly women, mostly women of color, who were still going to work and still having to figure out how to care for their kids, how to keep them and their families safe, and you know, also the folks making some of the lowest wages out there. You know, it's been so tough on women, and two of us are mothers here, and we're watching there be a lack of support, and historically, there has been a lack of support for families, but can you just give us a little bit of the history? How does the United States, and especially as it compares to other countries, how do they support families as they bring new life into the world? (laughs) The U.S. does not do a good job of supporting (laughs) families as they bring new life into the world. Uh, You know... Basically, we have this history of a kind of DIY culture, right? To like do it yourself, every family for themselves. Some of this comes from our racist and sexist past, right? That, you know, we were able to rely on enslaved women to care for children during slavery. And even after that, you know, basically there were a lot of rules and cultural norms that made it so that Black women's jobs were domestic work. And at the same time, we've relied on the unpaid labor of, you know, moms to care for kids. And so we've never valued care. We've never really done a good job of putting policies in place. We built a workforce that was for like a workplace that was for white men. And Mm -hmm. we never stopped to say, what do women need? What do caregivers need, right? Whether they're women or men. And, you know, the time of having a baby, especially, is the time that is most expensive. It's so risky. There's so many emotional pieces to it, right? It's a time when we should all be, like, zooming in and, like, loving on everyone, right? Like, you're having a baby. Let's protect you. Let's, like, you know, value this moment. And instead, people are just kind of left on their own to figure it out. Well, and I think last week this came to light because some of the Trump administration officials found out that they would not have paid leave that had just recently passed for the federal government employees to have paid leave. And, you know, it started circulating around a lot of us who worked for President Obama as new mothers. And we were going, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> like the, the, the problem isn't just that you didn't have paid leave. It's that all of America doesn't have paid leave. And so actually last week was an anniversary of the Family Medical Leave Act that gives people the ability to take unpaid leave, right? Like, can you tell us a little bit more about where our rights currently stand today? 
1993, the first bill that uh, Bill Clinton signed into law, that President Clinton signed into law, was the Family and Medical Leave Act. And this was a law that basically said you could take 12 weeks off unpaid, but job protected and healthcare protected to care for a newborn baby, a newly adopted baby, to take care of your own serious illness or the serious illness of a loved one. It, original versions of that bill were paid and were longer than 12 weeks, but the sausage making of legislation kind of really you know, watered that down a lot. So we've been waiting 28 years calling for that to become a paid law, and it is still not. A number of states, about 10 states in DC have passed paid leave laws in the meantime while they're waiting for the federal government to act, but that you know, it hasn't seen it in the other states. And the other thing, just to your point, we absolutely need it for everyone, you know, and I hope that those people who, you know, were impacted by losing their jobs in the federal government when they had paid leave and then they lost paid leave understand that everybody needs that right. And the Family Act, the social insurance program would actually provide it for everyone and make sure you can keep it when you leave your job. Yeah. And how does the U.S. compare to other countries around the world? The U.S. is in very bad company. We are one of two or three nations that don't have maternity leave, paid maternity leave policies, and we are the only developed OECD country that doesn't have it. We also spend a lot less on child care than other countries. When you look at the numbers, it's actually really daunting. More than 79% of workers do not have paid family leave through their jobs. Paid family leave is a big part of President Biden's COVID-19 rescue package. What kind of relief is currently in the proposed plan? President Biden's proposal looks at, you know, both the relief and the recovery pieces of this. And the relief piece is we actually passed for the very first time emergency paid leave. One of the first COVID relief packages Congress passed emergency paid leave to make sure that we could address the pandemic, that people could take time off for work and not worry about their paychecks, especially if they had to leave because their schools were closed because of COVID or their childcares were closed. They actually, we had paid leave in place for a very short period of time. And unfortunately, the original bill was beautiful. It had all the provisions you could imagine. It covered everybody. And then, of course, the Trump White House actually came in and really weakened it. it like they took out everyone who works for an employer with 500 or more employees. So basically, large employers got completely mm -hmm. exempted. And then they let small employers and healthcare providers opt out if they wanted to. So anyone with fewer than 50 employees could just opt out of the, of the law. They didn't have to like justify it, really. They just had to say like, I don't want to do it. So that <laughs> was really problematic. But there are yeah. a lot of people who did get to benefit that from that law. And so it expired. Most of it expired in December. And President Biden is trying to extend it and expand it to make sure that everyone who didn't, who got left out and left behind would be included in the future and that uh, it continues beyond 2020. Well, we've talked a lot about inequality on this podcast because, you know, while it's nice that Google can offer a really long leave, the majority of women um, who are not in the highest socioeconomic bracket would never get this kind of a leave. And you just talked about it a little bit with small businesses versus big businesses. How do we actually 
give a benefit to everyone? And if we don't, what kind of inequality does it create? A social insurance program would really kind of get everyone involved, that you could make sure that everyone's paying in and that everyone gets the benefit. But right now, you know, folks who are poorly paid are the most likely not to have paid leave and, you know, from their employers or in general. And so they're also the ones who can least afford to take unpaid leave. You know, that just means it kind of it just piles up and piles up and you, mm-hmm. you know, people end up in debt, people end up in really challenging situations, they might lose their jobs and have to leave their jobs, there could be homelessness, like, exactly the opposite of what we want for people when they're starting a family or facing a serious illness. It's so frustrating. And you would think that this is a bipartisan issue. It doesn't matter what your political leaning is, you're going to need childcare, should you choose to start a family, you're going to need that time to, you know, rest and recuperate. And I was looking at the Federal Employee Paid Leave Act that Ivanka was a champion for. What did her support do to actually get that across the aisle when 45 Democrats were the ones who co-sponsored it? Yeah, I would argue that. I don't know how much of a champion she was for that. In fact, uh, my understanding was that Senate Democrats actually traded. They said, "Okay, we will accept your Trump Space Force in exchange for getting federal employees paid leave. So I think, you know, if you're a champion of something, are you going to extract promises or are you going to say, I'm going to support this thing? You know, Democrats. Meanwhile, you know, it was Representative Carolyn Maloney's bill from New York. She's been introducing it since at least 2005. So this is clearly an issue that, you know, came from Democrats. And, you know, I think it should be a bipartisan issue. What ends up happening, though, is a lot of times Republicans see that it's a popular issue and a winning issue. And so what they do is they come up with the kind of smoke and mirrors, right? So they'll say, we should just have tax incentives for employers to do it. Well, the reality is employers can do it on their own right now. They don't need incentives. And it doesn't give a guarantee to everyone. And it's going to continue the inequality that you talked about. So I think, you know, it could be bipartisan, but we have to be really careful when Republicans say they're for it because we need to look into what the details are. And what the sacrifices are. I'd love to ask you about single mothers in particular. I was raised by a single mom. I know they're being hit especially hard. You work on issues around economic mobility. What kind of long-term effects can this have on the future mobility of a whole generation of kids? I think this is really problematic for kids and for women, quite frankly. You know, we I did a study with Sarah Jinglin from the Center for American Progress and Amanda Novello from the Century Foundation, where we found that the most likely situation is that women are going to lose about $64.5 billion worth of income if we don't solve the childcare challenges. So that's like the size of the the GDP of West Virginia or New Hampshire. Like that's a whole state. (laughs) Um, So that's, you know, that's really problematic. And of course that trickles down to children, right? That, you know, if you are losing your income or if you are stretched so thin because you're doing care and you're working, how are you able to show up for your family the way you want to. And part of it is just, we don't value care, like care Mm -hmm. matters, right? Like the time you spend with your family should be valued and should be, you know, sacred in so many ways. But we just say like, oh, that's not productive time. So it's not okay, which also has lots of sexist traits. It does. 
It's really unfortunate. And as you talk about women leaving the workforce and the burden that falls on working mothers, you know, so many women feel stunted in their careers. And I've personally experienced this where you feel like you're not able to grow because so much of your childcare falls on your shoulders. And unfortunately, we're not seeing men have the same sort of consequences of child rearing. How do we sort of equal that out? The Better Life Lab at New America just did a really interesting study where they followed men and they studied men and they found that men actually really want to be caregivers. A lot of times what's stopping them is their lack of experience that and and the same gender norms that keep women doing it kind of keep men from doing it. So I think we have a lot of work to do to change the narrative, to change the cultural norms around this, to, you know, value dads who are engaged, but not in the way where we hero them, right? Where like, they're like, oh, you're amazing because you're an engaged dad, right? Where that just becomes the norm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I had a dad who was very active in parenting alongside my mom, and it is, it has long-term consequences. It's, you know, for me made me closer to my dad and my mom, right? So there are so many expectations of people. And you talked about it just a minute ago, like we don't value caregivers. And I get so frustrated. I mean, my mom stayed at home with us. And I often think if they were like venture capitalists and they expected a return on their investment and had all their kids sign, you know, my mom would actually hold the majority of wealth in our family, but we don't do that. And then we've got all these expectations on working women too, right? So when I was going back to work, you have to be a wonder woman, um, especially as a mom, but you always just feel like you're failing. How do we make that stop? How do we change that? I think one thing we need to do is show that there are other options out there. I struggled with this a lot myself. Like I started thinking about this question when I was in college and basically was just had this moment of, oh, wait, my mom is a stay-at-home mom. And I kind of always thought I would do that. But I also really want a career that's going to help change the world. Like, how am I going to do these things? So I, as you know, a cocky idealistic college senior was like, I'll just figure it out through public policy before I have kids. Cool. Like no problem. Um, and started working on things like paid leave and, and childcare. And um, ultimately when I got to the point in my career where I wanted to, to have a child and become a mother, you know, I made some choices around consulting and finding ways to stay really engaged, but have my own autonomy and have my own flexibility in my schedule. And I had to make sacrifices. I had to say no to jobs that I really wanted or that would have made, you know, been a big public service kind of an opportunity. But um, at the same time, I found ways that I could play in the public policy spaces and continue to contribute to the work while also being able to care for my son. And I I feel like we don't get to, we don't tell those stories very often because it's like, I don't tell anyone. I kind of stepped back. I didn't lean in, you know, but that, you know, I think it's possible and would love for more people who've done it to tell their stories. I also just don't think it should be an individual responsibility to figure that out. Like I still a hundred percent believe public policy needs to put in the support so we don't actually have to make those choices. But I do think that until that happens, we have some more work to do. 
Certainly, and we've talked so much about the economic toll that this takes on women, but we haven't really talked about the mental health toll. How do we start prioritizing mental health of working mothers because we are being asked to do so much? How does that process even begin? I think in general, we need to invest in mental health. You know, we that's like, it's like right there with the stigma of care, you know, and the devaluing of care, right? These are things that need to come to the surface. And I, I do think, you know, COVID has been miserable, but I think some of the things that are positive or the silver linings of it have been that we see the childcare challenges. We see all of these inefficient or inefficiencies, inadequacies in our system so clearly. And another one of those is mental health, right? That, you know, people are really struggling right now, especially they're lonely, they're exhausted, you know, there's so much on their shoulders. And again, like, who do we want to be as a country? Do we want to be a country that supports people through that, that says like, we're here for you. We're a community. We're in this Mm -hmm. together. Or do we want to continue the way it's been, which is like, good luck. You're on your own. And I think, you know, to me, that's, it's a clear choice. You're, you're so right. And the one upside of all of us reading that Politico story and the Trump administration folks is it got us, you know, all again, focused on this issue And when we started just looking at it, there's actually new legislation. Can you walk us through the new legislation that's been passed and what we can do to advocate for this right for all Americans? So the Family Act uh, was introduced on the anniversary of the FMLA. And this is Senator Gillibrand and Congresswoman DeLauro's bill that they've introduced since I think 2013 that would provide 12 weeks of paid leave to everyone uh, based on the social insurance system. So basically, you know, you could get it across jobs. You could get it if you lost your job. And I think, you know, this is a really important policy. And now at the same time, there's an effort and um, there was a story in the Washington Post about, uh, I think it was Washington Post, that Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, said mm-hmm. that paid leave is going to be a priority for a second reconciliation package. And so there's a big fight to make sure that it's part of the recovery package, because if we can invest in a full care infrastructure that has paid leave, that has child care, that has long-term services and supports for older Americans and people with disabilities, you know, that's what real infrastructure looks like. That's what feminist infrastructure looks like. But it's the reality is like, we can't build back. We're not going to have an economic recovery unless we build a care infrastructure that works for all caregivers so that we can get everyone back to work in the way that they want to and the way they should be able to. So should this be attached to employment Should it be a condition of you having a job? That is a great question. I mean, right now, the way it's been conceived has been as attached to your employer and, you know, that uh, or the social insurance version of it is where you have to actually have worked for an employer for a certain amount of time to qualify for it. So, for example, if you didn't have a job, you wouldn't necessarily get it. Although if you're self-employed, you can you can get it. So it is it does help some folks. But I think that's a great question of, you know, should we be valuing parenthood and care regardless of employment? And, you know, I think we're not we're not there in that conversation yet, but I think it's an important question. I hope we move closer to that. Because it is. It's just so many levels of inequality. Yeah. 
Well, we are we are going to keep monitoring it and do everything that we can to advocate for it. Julie Cashin, it has been such a terrific pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Julie. Thanks, Julie. That was a great conversation with Julie. I feel like there's so much more we could talk about. Obviously, we're making some progress, but we still have a long way to go. So we will definitely loop back on this topic in the future. But next, let's go to our POTUS of the week. And our POTUS of the week is our forever first lady, Michelle Obama. She announced this week that she's launching a new show on Netflix called Waffles and Mochi, which will take families on adventures around the world as they try out new cuisines and healthy recipes. Waffles and Mochi drops on March 16th. Tune in. Awesome. And our shout out this week goes to Britney Spears. There's a new documentary out, Framing of Britney Spears, as we are all about women having decision-making power over their own lives. Free Britney. Speaking of Britney's, next week we're joined by Britney Barnett, an award-winning attorney who has done extensive criminal justice work. Until then, be sure to shoot us a review and let us know how you're enjoying the show and take care. 